0: of the Mind podcast from Brookwood and Avalon Schools. Um, I'm Sherry Walsh, assistant head of Brookwood. I'm here today with Glencora Pipkin, um, who is the marketing and international student director. Hi, Glencora. Hey, good morning. And I'm also here, this is our first live podcast, very exciting, with the Brookwood faculty. Say hi, Brookwood faculty. (laughs) So that's pretty exciting. Um, and these are some of the best and most interesting people I know. I'm honored to be among them, and also with you, Glencora. Thank you. Um, I know that um, you know. I said that you're the marketing and international student director, and um, usually I stop the introduction there um, because it's my feeling that the listener base is more or less familiar with the faculty members we have as podcast guests. But while Glencora's work is actually the most visible, um, she works. You know, in marketing, we see the biz. Um, she herself is probably the least visible uh, because she works mm-hmm. remotely. So, um, sure. a while back, RJ introduced me to Glencora as Brookwood's secret weapon. Uh, and I think that's about right, you know? Um, so, um, Glencora came to Brookwood as an English teacher, but then went remote as marketing director when her husband took a job as a university professor. Um, Glencora has a deep understanding of the school's mission through her work at the school and through her own cap- Catholic liberal arts education at the University of Dallas. Um, to which she has family ties, and then also at Duquesne. That's right. Uh, do you want to talk about Dallas at all?
1: Um,
0: I, my grandparents
1: founded it, um, and uh, I have a deep love of it. Um, I, uh, um, it's a family, basically almost, it feels like a, a family um, business. It's, it's not a family business. But um, I uh, really uh, grew my love of um, learning um, and critical thinking from the University of Dallas. And I saw uh, life lived in a religious way that could be really winsome there. So, um,
0: yeah, that's great. Um, Glenn Cora is uh, responsible for the Brooklyn Publications You See and Read, um, and she works a lot to help students with the logistics of the college process as well. We're here today to talk about a book uh, by Jessica Hooten-Wilson called um, The Scandal of Holiness, which came out this year. Um, Did you know um, Jessica Hooten-Wilson before reading this book? It's funny, I was trying to think back. Um, because I
1: she was at University of Dallas as a graduate student when I was there as an undergraduate, and so it's possible that she took a class with my grandmother, um, who uh, Jessica Hooten Wilson is like the her like position right now at UD is like under the Louise and Don Cowan um, chair. Um, so, um, anyway, I think I might have taken a class with her, but I am not sure. Yeah,
0: yeah, but certainly you um, you understand her educational background. And, um, and sort of where, where she's coming from in important ways. So this is a nonfiction book that teaches a kind of reading technique. Um, earlier this week, I um, talked to the faculty about um, other kind of intellectual memoirs, um, some, some other books that have come out, especially um, recently, the, um, like the Roosevelt Montas Rescuing Socrates, okay. and Zena Hitz's Lost in Thought, those books. Um, I also tend to like the uh, literary self-help book, um, Faye Weldon's book on Jane Austen, um, and like that um, some bits of um, like how Dante can save your life and yeah. Alain de Botton, um reading of Proust, although I don't love his sensibility all the way. I think that, but that sort of approach I think is really compelling, and I think that um, that this book does some things that are like that as well. Do you have a way? Okay, so I, I said intellectual memoir. And um, kind of memoir of reading. Do you have a way that you classify the book?
1: Oh goodness, um, no. I mean, to me, it's it's like a, a an introductory to um, reading, just to, to an introductory to getting into these books, which I think is um, excellent and needed. You, often you'll have a friend who'll say you should read this book; it's good. But for her, it, this is this. You read a book, and it will enrich your life in these ways. Yeah. And it's—I um, just think of it as this really accessible kind of um, introduction, right? Um, yeah, yeah. But so not—I don't have a classification for it.
0: Yeah. So when I read the foreword, um, which is by Lauren Winner, I—I yeah. um, I, I wondered, like, who is the audience for this book? Is it high school students? Is it you know? And um, but as—but I actually think that the the foreword is. Um, geared i mean i guess a forward is meant to sort of bring people in but it's um, it's geared a little bit um, in a more i don't know maybe simple way than yeah. uh, than the rest of the book which i actually found to be complex and interesting yeah, yeah. i i loved the forward actually because it was like it really spoke to me i was like this
1: is what it means in some ways it means to be an adult you forget the I, what Literature can do to your life, how it can change it, and that it is it actually important that you don't need a to-do manual for everything, mm-hmm. right? That a story can give you deep significance, mm-hmm. and um, and I, I, it, it was like reading just even the first page. In the first page, there's a um, the um, author Laura Winner is talking about how she admires this um, uh, faculty member, right? Because she lived a very beautiful life, but. Then when she asked what she was reading, um, she said, "Oh, well, I don't. I, you know, I'm I'm, I'm not reading. I'm, I'm reading scholarly journals. Right? That's what my my um, extra reading is." And she said that was less than enviable. And um, I I I saw myself in that professor. I was like, "That's what my evenings are. I'm reading." The Atlantic, or I'm reading, uh, catching up with the news, or I'm not immersing myself in story, which is so enriching.
0: So do you think that's um, because it requires something of you that you're already giving all the time? No. Um, or you think it, why do you, why do you think I is? think there's like, I think I, for me, it's a real, it's like a, a
1: fight between the way the world thinks, which is like, mm-hmm. how do I improve myself? Yeah. For, and, and in a very clear way, which is like... You get better through reading to do books, right? You do you learn techniques, right? Um, and I know that's not entirely true, but there, but it's in it's a mindset conscious that says continue to get better at these skills, read things that will get to the point, right? Yeah, yeah. and um, it takes it's like when, once you immerse yourself into a story, you lose that, you lose that ability to go, okay, uh, how what do I get out of this right away? Um, and there's a lot to be gleaned from that, from
0: not being able to understand is understand what you get right away Mm -hmm. so trust patience yeah um, kind of contemplation yes i mean i know that later in the book she talks about the active life and the contemplative life yeah i don't know if there's a, a connection to be made there but certainly the um the um the less linear more um I don't know. Like the, the the more, the, I guess the less direct, as yeah. you say, yeah. uh, way of um, of encountering things. And it's true that in the forward, there is um, that she she takes her exigence uh, from Augustine talking about how fiction is problematic because of um, the way that Augustine reads um, the Aeneid, um, and um, and then also like all the stuff about um, girls reading novels and um, and how it's it's harmful for them. Um, and then, of course, um, she turns the corner and talks about how fiction prods the imagination yeah. and opens us outward. I comments. love, I love that image because it, it sort of was like, yes, I can be like a cow sometimes. She's, she says, "Fiction <laughs> prods
1: the imagination." I'm like, I am like, imagine, I am like, it's true. I can be like a you know kind of uh, recalcitrant cow, you know, where I am just like, Brr. and um, and somebody's you know, I feel like it's sometimes it's the Holy Spirit that's like, go, just go. Um,
0: but yeah, I, I loved that, that it can prod the imagination. It's a great metaphor. And so in the introduction to the text, um, Jessica Hooten-Wilson talks about um, the role and importance of the imagination. Um, and, um, and she says, she says here, and she says in a lot of places in the book, if you don't have good stories, you'll have bad stories. Um, that you know, if you don't, if you don't fill your head with the good stuff, your head's gonna be filled anyway, uh, with you know, with whatever's more at hand. And so she talks about that. And she talks a little bit about what stories do, um, thinking about imagination as having the capacity to make a real difference in our lives. Um, She also talks a little bit about how we are not the heroes of our own story, which I think is um, countercultural in some ways. And we are not the author of our own story. And we think about, like, all of the modes of self-creation that are um, important now in the contemporary culture. Um, that it's, I mean, it's pretty interesting and worth saying that we are not, you know, we are not the heroes of our own story. We are not the author of our own story. We don't create ourselves. Do you want to talk about that at all?
1: Um, well, I, thought, I mean, I loved so much of the introduction. I loved, you know... Um, yeah i have a note right there that says we are not the center of our, our own narrative but i love that she even she brings in psalm 139 which says um like an open book you watched me grow from from conception to birth all the stages of my life were spread out before you the days of my life all prepared before i'd even lived one day um and i but to me that that's a center right is that Written, right? That's that's the implication here in Psalm 139. We're not we're not the writer of our own, um, but um how lovely it is to see the psalmist kind of put this um, into such an image like that. But um but yeah, I think that to me that's where the center of it is for her, right? Um but um yeah, um lots of great stuff and um I one of the things that I kind of wrote all over is when she mentioned c.s lewis and how c.s lewis his own kind of like conversion when he talks about it it's not he doesn't talk about this great long conversation that's all reasoned out instead he talks about the seeds were planted through little through uh books here and there narrative right he talks about george mcdonald um and fantasties and um yeah um it was his imagination she says uh, on page two yet most of his book focuses on Lewis's early life specifically the life of his imagination for Lewis God God first draws us to himself via our imagination our way of seeing ourselves in the world which is another mimesis is that like what? what is the how do we see ourselves and that's what stories allow us to do right they let us see ourselves without actually seeing ourselves right we see an image of what humans are like and we're able to go oh I hadn't Maybe I'm like that, right? It's like, like reading Flannery sure. O'Connor, you're like, I can be that
2: ugly.
0: That's me. Well, at um, first it's like, oh, that's definitely not me. Yeah. And then like, oh, oh, yeah. oh that's me. Yeah. I've had that thought. Guess, yeah.
1: Um, so, yeah,
0: for sure. I mean, I do a lot of work with, um, you know, the hero's journey and and this kind of stuff in you know, the various epics that we read in English 9 and English 10. And, um, and I don't think I emphasize enough. I do talk about the reluctant hero, right? Yeah. But I don't think I emphasize enough um, that it's, I mean, that there's the agency of the hero and the hero's choices. And, I mean, that's really important in tragedy. But you have, um, but there are, but it's not just that, right? And, um, and, I mean, our agency is important and our choices are important. But that that notion that we're not actually the author of our own stories, mm-hmm. um, and that we're not um, that you know that we're um, that we're not. E- and later in the in the book, um, Jessica Hooten Wilson talks about creation too, as reminding us that we are not the center. Yeah. Um, and so there's um, there's that that kind of um, that kind of aspect that that humility that's needed. Yeah.
1: Um, I think I'm it really, takes pressure off, too, right? When you're like, oh, phew, I'm not like, <laughs> I don't have to figure
0: everything out, right? Um. Right, right. But, I mean, but you have to, like, put yourself in the right position. Like, and so the um, the quotation um, from Alistair McIntyre that she points to is, you know, um, one cannot answer the question, what ought I to do before knowing of what story am I a part? Yeah. Um, and so thinking about that and that those are some of the, the choices that we make talks about c.s lewis um there in um in that hideous strength um the story of the marriage of the dual protagonist um you have the um the very rationalist um husband kind of pushing past the point of decision Right, mm-hmm. and so that's where the agency is, right? Yeah. Or like Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. Wasn't there a moment when we could have made a different decision? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but that, but that sort of that moment of decision, and when we have access to it, and when we don't.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Hmm. Yeah, that was great. I have nothing to add to that. <laughs> <laughs> but just, I mean, and so, I mean, again, the idea too. She also talks in the introduction about imitation. And the importance of um, our finding models in literature in a way that like, sometimes this book um, seems to me to be a little um, pat, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. then I sit with it for a minute, and I'm like, oh, oh yeah, like it deepens for me. Yeah. Uh, but that that idea that um, that we want to imitate, well, of course we want to imitate, but then yeah. um, but then we see the ways in which we resist that, and um, and and how we can find. Um, rich ways um, to, to accomplish that. Yeah. Um, it's important for us to talk a little bit, I think, about the way that she um, offers for us to read. Yeah. Uh, this kind of iconic reading. Mm-hmm. And she uses the um, contemporary novel uh, Loras mm-hmm. as a way of getting at this. I don't know if you all know that. Uh, but you have the, um, is the um, is the writer. Um, you have the um, and he sets it in the Middle Ages, I think too, in order to get away from some of that you are the author of your destiny kind of um, kind of reading. Um, and so you have um, this, but the the novel is presented to us um, as a kind of icon. And the way that she would let she would have us read literature in general is um, both in terms of sort of, Contemplating the saint and understanding the story that the icon does both of those things. It gives us the story and it gives us the person, um, and so that becomes a way of reading a variety of texts.
1: And it's also a, almost like a it's a transcendent window, right? I mean, that, that is kind of like what, um, and I, and I think that part of part of the introduction she, ta- she talks a little bit about too is, and you could almost call it a scan. Like why she calls it scandalous is that learning how to be saints from people who don't exist right um so which is yeah it, it's it, i mean I, i'm sure a lot of people might think that's scandalous like how do you how do you learn to be a saint from someone who's not real um
0: well and someone who's from the mind of another person yeah right somebody who's i mean so not only not real but not created you know directly um yeah. you know by god but, yeah you know another yeah. kind of fabrication which i guess is also why um why bad stories are so dangerous yeah yes 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 um but feel free to run with this sort of iconic reading of any of the texts that she talks about that you wanted to in particular focus on
1: no i i, I wanted to just real quickly mention this idea like it's this so this is so interesting because this feels so much like my grandmother louise she would in her in her classes she'd always she'd give us quizzes and the quizzes were not a straight up reading quiz they wouldn't be like what happened in this chapter it would be she had a matching section of images throughout the novel, like images that stuck out, and you had to match them with what what the, what they were. So it could have been like, um, uh, drawing a blank on an example, but something that just an image that stuck out, right? Maybe in Faulkner's The Bear, it would be the bear, right? Or you know, but something that, and, and you'd have to place it with the the event. And for Louise, um, that was part of the novel was was seeing these images as like something sort of transcendently happening Mm -hmm. um
0: I just so, thought it was so, so how that work As an English teacher, I'm interested in this. I know. Like, I so, can so, like, so, like the image of the candle. Feel free to make stuff up. Yeah. So, like the image of the candle is on one side, and you right. match it with like what, like what, what happened? Yeah. What, what, what characters or okay, like what um, characters associated yes, with the image? Yes. Yeah. Or, um, or but it's not just like straight up like the character symbolizes no, the life of them. No. No. But no. rather like the yeah. okay, the connection. The, yeah, the
1: connection of like what what chapter it was or whatever. Um, but i'd have to i feel like i'd have to go back and ask my dad for those quizzes because i know he has some of them um but it was very an imagistic looking way of looking at literature um which is it stretches people because i don't think most people are kind of used to that um but it does i I think images are imprinted um in your mind when you read these stories even though you don't they're it's words which is fascinating you know (laughs) um but okay so that's an aside um
0: but is there anything in particular that you wanted to point to that um, that Jessica Hooten-Wilson reads um, iconically that um, that we should spend some time on? I don't know. <laughs> okay. okay. So, I mean, so you have, I mean, like, what she talks about, when she talks about, the iconic reading. Yep. Is, I mean, at first, the image of Loras and that character, Arseni, yeah, exactly. and um, and talking about um, Arseni as... Um, Having uh, over the course of his life many stories in one story, and that that's a kind of medieval method, yeah. um, and that um, his his sin sets the story in motion, uh, and then we get different views of him throughout his life. Yeah. And um, in that section too, there's the sense of time as moving in a spiral, where he gets to um, like his, the story begins with a particular sin, um, and he gets to revisit a similar situation later. Um, and do something different. And so we see, and I think we see that all over literature. I think of Beloved in particular. As I think of,
1: um, I don't know, has anybody ever read um, Flaubert's? um, Flaubert's got some stories. One of them is called um, Saint Julien Hospitier. It's um, Saint Julien the Hospitaller. But his story is basically he's hunting and his parents, um, uh, his parents want to come visit him, I think. Maybe I'm getting the story wrong. They come and visit him as a surprise and when he gets home, he thinks it's a thief, and he kills them on accident. Yeah, right, murders them. But he spends the rest of his life—surprising, <laughs> <laughs> right? Um, but he spends the rest of his life trying to atone for his sins by kind of being a healer. Um, and he lives out on the lives out on the riverbanks, I think, um, and is kind of this poor man who heals the poor and the sick, um, which I thought was so interesting because it, it, it is so similar to Laurus. But yeah, that 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 story about how to atone for, for one's sins, yeah. right? But yeah. that it's it's not a clear path.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Um, right. 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 And thinking about the, I mean, I think from I think in the case of this character, he knows from the beginning that this is something he has to atone for.
2: Yeah. Um,
0: but you think about um, you know Raskolnikov and Crime and Punishment, he spends a lot of the novel defending the wrong action before he finally comes to a place where he realizes that he needs to atone for it, and then he's given the way yeah. to atone for it. Um, so, yeah. So um, the, not, the book is divided into a number of sections. One is about the Holy Fool. Uh, one is about the communion of saints. Um, you get um, a section about nature, you get a section about kind of social justice, liberating yeah. prophets, the prophetic voice. Uh, one is about um, the life of um, of a woman protagonist, um, focusing on Kristen Lavren's daughter. Uh, one is about the contemplative and the active life, and then one is about um, the end of life, about the um, the way of dying. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you get these um, this sort of panoply of um, discussions of different texts throughout and, um, and then at the end of each section she structures it where she has like some um, quotations from other texts or some quotations from the texts that she's talked about uh, for contemplation and then discussion questions uh, that take you um, more deeply into kind of the thematic um, structure of the text and then um, if it's working right, right, it opens out. Uh, for kind of personal contemplation, yeah, I think this
1: would do well, super well, as a reading group. You know, like as a companion for a reading group, mm-hmm. right? You know, where you come together, read a book, and then you use her um, use her questions to think through it. Um, yeah,
0: yeah. And it offers like a, I mean, so if you were to read, um, you know, the things that she mentions um, over the course of of the piece, you end up with um, like a contemporary Russian novel. Um, you end up with the Space Trilogy. Um, there's the book of the dun cow which you may or may not know um Walter Rangeran it was it's like a science fiction book that's I it's it. well, it's pitched I, I read it it was like the book at um at St Jerome um, okay. academy for it was like the the parent book club um, but it's it's suitable for like a middle grades reader but it okay. also i mean as as Jessica Hood Wilson talks about it also opens up and is like super it's it's not allegory, right. so I mean Lewis, while more complexly written, is allegory. Yeah. This book, while more simply written, is um, more open and complex. Yeah, and so you get, uh, but you get that kind of, of text. You get um, uh, Julia Alvarez, um in the Time of the Butterflies. Mm-hmm. You get Christian Laverne's daughter. You get the Diary of a Country Priest. Uh, and so there's all of this kind of walking through that's um, that's possible. Hmm. Um, was there a place in particular that you wanted to land um I mean I, there's some places um, that I especially enjoyed I'm interested in yeah. what you what you thought so one you know one of the things that was super
1: fun was um my husband and I went to Oxford this summer we loved it it was wonderful um and my husband's a medievalist and he is just um he's read that was you know it's funny because C.S. Lewis read George MacDonald my husband his whole imagination was filled with C.S. Lewis growing up as a kid um and um that really brought him I think that's what brought him to love medieval literature was C. S. Lewis, um, which is so interesting to me. Um, but um we so we spent time at the you know, she mentions kind of the setting for this lovely place in um in, in a hideous strength. And um it's like the kilns. And I was like, oh, I know. Like, I visited Lewis's graveyard, and it's one of the most beautiful graveyards. There's flowers everywhere. I made a little bouquet. <laughs> um, but what a lovely, like, you know, what a lovely place it is. There's cool. Um, there's there's places. To, it's shady. It's shady and, and uh, kind of dappled sunlight. Um, it's just kind of like a lovely resting place, you know. Um, so that you know, in terms of like, so when I was reading the second chapter, I, I could see, I was like, I know this, I could see where why he loves this place. Hmm. Um, but the other thing that was really wonderful about her, her biggest kind of like takeaway from the second chapter was that um, community is incredibly important. And I just like kind of wrote Brookwood all over this um, because that's what, um, it's a continual effort to create a community and to encourage one another in good works and um he you know she kind of talks about the characters aren't really phenomenal themselves they're not like amazing people who are doing all these super virtuous things it's it's rather that they have a community that will kind of form them right through these different acts right through what they're through prayer through what they watch what they listen to what they read all of that makes a big difference and she talks about at the end, sort of like, you know, do you cultivate this in your home? And I'm like, oh, do I? What do we, you know, what are, what are you doing? She says, in an effort to, cult, to cultivate good community, how do we live? Do our homes resemble St. Anne's or Belbury? With our families, do we read Shakespearean sonnets or Dickinson or County Cullen or Marilyn Nelson? Do we listen to Bach more than podcasts? What kind of education are my children receiving? Right. Um, Do they know the great tradition of Homer, Dante, Austin, as Lewis did? Do they learn languages in schools, such as Latin or Spanish? Or are they learning to prize rationalism, progress, and utility? What habits are being cultivated by my home, my children's school, and my church? And what kind of community are they forming? We may feel lost when we read read headlines about large-scale changes in culture, but we confront worldly waywardness best by investing in our local community communities, pardon me, in attending to how we raise and educate our children or the children of our neighbors and tending our own gardens and encouraging the persons in the pew behind us, we become a culture where holiness flourishes like fruit from his vine. And I love that because I, I feel like, yes, there's there's little communities everywhere, but the, you know, the community in which we work, the community um, in our home, it's funny because I work entirely from home. And I have to reimagine it myself, like, what is my community like? But it still doesn't, even if I'm working entirely from home, I'm still connected to to Brookwood, I'm still connected to Avalon, I'm still connected to everybody who I interact with on email, right? So I have to be kind and courteous, these things matter, the words that I choose, what my, you know, it, what my children are listening to, right? All of that stuff matters. Um, and I loved that. Like, but they're little things. It's like, like she says, the person behind you in the pew. What did you say, Michelle? Oh, there you said, Yeah. Um, but yeah, all,
0: all the little things, like just opening the door for somebody, makes a huge difference. Anyway. Yeah. And actually, in the paragraph above that, yeah. um, she says only by keeping our eyes open to those who need community will we overcome the temptation to push ourselves up to the front. And I think mm. that's important, too. I think that especially, like the, the great benefit of Brookwood is um, that we, I mean, it's an intentional community. We know who we are and what we're doing. At the same time, we're outward facing. Um, and it's it's so important to um, to make sure that we um, that, that's that as the school as the school gets full yeah. as um, as we're um, more selective about you know admissions as you know as all of those things happen, um, it's important that we're still looking for the people who um, who need that community. Yeah. And I know like when when Rich gets frustrated with a student and he's evaluating whether the student is um, a good fit for us at that particular time one of the things that he'll say is like well are we helping them are we still helping the student Mm -hmm. and I think like if you're in the middle of a disciplinary event like that is not my first thought you know Uh, but he's like are we still helping them and I think that that's that's also really key to um to maintaining um you know both like are we doing our part to make sure that we're um providing the correct kinds of materials but then also are we are we are we outward facing are we inviting people in yeah yeah i know that's a big part of the um, of the cl charism as well um the um and you know cl is um present in the school and that's a uh, that's a part of um, that's that's that, that hospitality that inviting in is important yeah. and of course you know evangelization yeah yeah And
1: I, it, this is, it's funny reading this because i'm like this is so much like university of dallas the way what my grandparents had really envisioned was that they that everybody would read uh homer um they would read virgil they to so the iliad the, the odyssey the Aeneid. they'd read dante everyone football players um you know the jocks right the people who are like the business majors and they would all have to talk about it in class like they would be forced to but it would it would create a different culture and it did it's they've and they've said we're not going to make this just for the people who who are who we would consider smart already this is for everybody because we believe these things are going to shape them in a good way And it's
0: so far succeeded. (laughs) Well, and that's so true too. I mean that 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 it's about the content of the uh, of the can. I mean, so much about contemporary education. And David and I were talking about this previously. But so much about contemporary education is focused on method and skill, and uh, and those things are important. But um, but this this idea that a book in common will make a community. Um, mm-hmm. Has become surprisingly controversial in the culture, you know, uh, that there should be books that we have in common and that helped to right. shape us. Yeah, 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 and not just like Harry Potter. <laughs> right. I mean, although that's you know that's it's a fun. way. Yeah, end, it is a um, way in. But yes, but yes. <laughs> There's
1: my nice snobbery going out. But, but like.
0: having but also <laughs> elevating it took me a long time, man. Yeah.
2: Uh,
0: yeah it was the, the summer that I read the whole series out loud to my children that Aww. that changed my perspective Aww. on that.
1: Well, I guess, and <laughs> I guess that's coming then. <laughs>
0: But, um, but yeah, so were there other places where you wanted to touch down?
1: I love the, and I haven't actually read Kristen Laverne's Kristen Daughter. We have a really old copy of it, but I loved the chapter on it. That felt very yeah. like...
0: You do have to be careful because there's the old translation of Kristen Laverne's Daughter that um, was deliberately archaic. Um, the, the person tried to make it sound medieval okay. um, in a way that actually in the original the writer didn't do. Uh, and so there's a there's a new translation new translation from the 90s uh, that moves more like story and is actually more like what unset wrote okay okay that's that's good to know um
1: no i I just really loved it it spoke to me at the beginning how she you know it's when she um she she just felt like being a woman is complex um (laughs) all of it right you know and um at the beginning she talks about how she was a a bit sad that she was gonna have a girl because she felt like what is i don't you know I, i could read what she says um let's see um when my husband and I had this when I, my husband and I discovered during the ultrasound of our first child that she was a girl I cried uncontrollably I knew she faced a life in which people would tell her all the things she couldn't do I feared she would suffer from eating disorders as I had struggling to be the body that culture would reduce her to I knew she would have to strive to show people she was more than an object I wanted her to be known in her full humanity as an embodied soul filled with the holy spirit isn't that beautiful um the knowledge of my daughter's sex brought to the surface all the anger I had suppressed regarding the church's constraints on my calling, and I have spent nearly a decade reading books from all Christian traditions about women in leadership, women in the Bible, women in the history of the church. From, from medieval writers such as Julian of Norwich to modern ones such as Sigurd Unset, I have learned that the dichotomy between working and mothering is false. When we impose this false division, we force women to choose. Either they can be a career woman who hands over the job of raising her children to others, or worse, who sacrifices her unborn to avoid the inconvenience it would cause in her work, or they can limit their world to the domestic sphere, dedicating all their time, energy, and emotion to their children while the other gifts and talents the Lord gave them lie fallow. Um, In her 1912 reflections on the suffragette movement, Unset wrote, I have no doubt that women find fulfillment in their work, even if they have also been wives and mothers. The false either or neglects the fullness of a woman. Um, so I I felt like all of that spoke to me so so much, um, especially as a working mother, um, and sort of I think all women. And I feel like this is so apropos for Brookwood because the, you know we're we're helping to train women who are going to go into the world and also have to be have to fight all these kind of like feelings of like what do, what am I supposed to, can I can I be a good mother if I continue to do my work, like, does that, you know, what does it look like to be a faithful servant or God? Um, and I just love that she kind of spoke that so beautifully and, and honestly, you know. Um, so, um, and then I, I, what I loved about Kristen Laverne's daughter is um, the humility that she learns through all of it. That she makes some major mistakes, but the biggest thing is that she is massively humbled
0: in a way that's really beautiful um yeah um jessica hooten talks about the um, Kristen's divided will um at the beginning and again so you have um her um her own pride and her own um what she wants uh, versus um what is you know what is right and um I mean that's sort of the falseness too of kind of the body spirit dichotomy. Yeah, yeah. Um, As as we hear as we hear her story, um, and how you know she has eight hundred pages or something to work it out. Yeah, uh, and so you get um, you get all of that all of that complexity. Yeah,
1: and I I think too about the story about Kristen Lavren's daughter. It, like I, I thought as a little girl, it, we uh, learning through the church, you saw these saints, but they always felt so untouchable. It was like uh, uh, a beautiful. Uh, Catherine of Alexandria. She is so beautiful, but the cream, the I don't know. It was a king or somebody wanted her, and she said no, and then they chopped her head off or something. Like, but you hear these kind of stories often enough that you are like, I how do I how do I compete? How do
0: I, is that what holiness looks like? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> um, right? Or how does this look for me? Yeah. How yeah. does this look for so, me? A, how do I compete? Yeah. <laughs> B. How does this look like hey. I, in my life? How does that manifest and how? how am I preparing myself for those choices when yes. they come? Yes, yes. Right.
1: And how, and if, I, if I'm not ready to be a nun, right, where there's so much beauty in that, like I wouldn't ever want to um, disparage that, but that wasn't how I felt called. But could my life be holy and God say, yeah, you are, you know, you are mine without having to be a nun, right? Or these things that, that right. look so much holier. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love that. Yeah holiness is offered not merely through that one vocation um, but through a whole life, right? I mean, I feel like the story kind of makes that clear that it's not um, just like you choose to be a holy person through
0: one career, right? Right. Um, Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And uh, Kristen also learns that um, the consequence of sin is that we hurt other people and that seems like a, a big Portion of her understanding, her role in the world, um, and motherhood itself, kind of lurching Kristen out of her selfishness. But then, in the end, um, her own good death, which is a kind of sacrifice—won't yeah. spoil it—but uh, um, but that she makes it, you know, all the way to um, to an end that that shows the fullness of her humility, and I mean, that she has, in fact, used her life um, to become sanctified. Yeah. Hmm. So I wonder, here we are at minute 37, and I wonder if um, if the Brookwood faculty, which is present here, um, either has questions about stuff that we've said, uh, if there are particular texts that you have enjoyed um, reading iconically or that now you're kind of processing in a slightly different way because of um, what Jessica Hooten Wilson offers, uh, or if there's anything else that... Um, that you want to um, either ask about, or um, like how and Wilson would approach it, uh, or to offer some ideas about—that's what this chair is for over here. Uh, so people should feel free to um, to to do that. Um, I mean, or I can repeat a question if you just want to say something. And Quentin can edit out all the dead space. <laughs> say,
3: I, I just want to know how, how you picked the book. What? Who, who told you to read
0: that book? Other than you from Dallas. Oh. oh um, well, so, so Rich so, is asking yeah. um, uh, who told uh, who told um, who told us to read this Who adult? told us to yes. you read this? Yes. Who Who, who ordered you?
1: this text? <laughs> yeah. yes. um, so Sherry you brought it up right? I, it's funny because like so this so Jessica Houghton Wilson actually like works at University of Dallas right now and um, she's I think she's doing a conference in September for Catholic writers and artists which I think is super cool. Um but oh, right. Right, that imagination conference. Yeah. 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 Um, my husband's going to go too, but I won't. Um, hmm,
0: I wonder if I could get some time off. No.
1: No. <laughs> no. Um, but, yeah, no, I, so it's funny that I hadn't even thought of looking at this book, but Thierry brought it up, and I was like, how have I not read this book? It's, oh. so, it's such a treasure to read.
0: Yeah, and mm-hmm. I brought it up um, because I had, well, I followed Jessica Hooten Wilson on Twitter, and I, um, and I also had heard about um, her and um, Anika Prather, who is another um, sort of voice of um, Christian spirituality in education. Uh, and I had, um, I had had them both recommended to me by Helen Berkeley, um, who teaches at Friends School of Baltimore and who came to visit us um, to find out about what, you know, what, we're, what we're about as, uh, as a kind of community as um, Friends School of Baltimore has gone through a lot of changes and a lot of um, bumps in thinking about its relationship to the changing contemporary culture. You, you'll need, can you walk forward? Oh, sure. Do you want to come yeah. over here, Judy? I, I don't want to make it awkward, but I also want to make sure that I'm not just
3: repeating what you say. Yeah. Um, I love this. <laughs> I haven't read the book, but I am oh, so happy to, to. to meet her. I could Cora. I'm so happy to <laughs> 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 um, And I was just struck by that idea that um, fiction prods the imagination. Mm. And I'm sorry, this is a quote, I don't know, I can't remember who it's by, but that we become what we behold. Mm. Mm and that that beholding is like um, uh, an icon being a window to heaven, in that, um, especially in the Orthodox tradition, that it's, um, it's a window. So the saints are on that side, and we're on this side. But when we behold it, we're entering into communion, and that forms us like the people that we don't know in fiction. You know, in some sense, these... Icons are almost like cartoons, Yes. you know. So, I just thank you. That was beautiful. That's
1: such a great because it is. It's the the idea of an icon is, in some ways, I think, is really foreign to most people, and it's also if you see, you know, um, Orthodox, they are very particular about their icons. Like, you can't, you they're, the whole, they're holy sacred, objects. To right? sacramental, yeah. Right? And that's exactly why, right? Because it's this thing that, it's an actual, it's, it's, it's sacramental, right? Yeah, it's transcendent.
3: Um, I mean, it brings us into the transcendent. And, um, yeah, and then also I was thinking about how, you know, we're made in the image and likeness of God. The image. Like, this word yes, image just keeps coming up. Yes. And, wow i mean we're we're being made too it's but this it's, image our imagination is so incredibly powerful yeah and i just love the way you brought that into focus about what we you know what we bring into ourselves is what we become hmm. but it's a relationship of bringing in it's giving and receiving mm-hmm. yeah so
0: i'm really glad you unpacked that like that the um Brookwood art teacher, Judy Kearns, okay. <laughs> uh, I'm really glad that you unpacked that that way. Um, I mean, I do a thing on my policy sheet that's like, we read literature as, you know, I want you to think about literature as a window and literature as a mirror, right? And yeah. uh, and then I just kind of keep moving. And I like the way that you lingered there and um, and and talked about um, how, yeah, how that, that window works. I don't want to say anything else because I've already said too much
1: beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, I think you're right though, like the lingering is important, right? Because it gives you that that ability to form an image, right? And to yeah, to wrestle with it a little bit.
3: Right, and to come come into relationship with it, like the, I think a lot about the right brain, left brain, and how, you know, left brain is sort of linear, analytical data processing, sorry Mm word-driven, you know, verbal, but um, where you're putting things in a category. Yeah. But in the right brain, like drawing on the right side of the brain, Betty Edwards talks about this, that you're it's a contemplative relationship with that object or that person or that landscape, whatever at the moment, that moment in time. So you're entering into relationship with it and you're you're really observing it as sort of um, you know, line and shape, but also it's essence it's not like oh there's a tree there's a poplar tree it's like wow what is this poplar tree I'm just looking at the tree out the window and I'm just thinking wow look at the way the light is hitting that and it's so beautiful but
1: which is an interesting thing to do with story, right? Because that's not, like you're saying, with words, we tend to go, okay, what's happened here? What happened here? But when you create images, like you're saying, there's a relationship made, and you linger. And it's mm-hmm. also scary, because you're like, wait, what is this? <laughs> How's it impacting me? How <laughs> like, does what's, it me? It's changing me. Yeah. Yeah. So thank
3: you.
2: <laughs> here comes Barbara Gagliotti. I, as you it's, it's the same uh, point, I think as you were speaking about the, the image, it really kind of popped out at me that it's not strange. It's not a strange way to view things because, um, because of the nature of reality. Yeah. I mean, reality is sacramental, right? It, and so us being drawn into what is really there has many, many layers all, yeah. through, all throughout the cosmos, I at mean, every level. There is this uh, call to be in relationship with, with the author of reality, and it and it it's a it's a beautiful thing. I, when I read literature, I love the um, the images. Mm-hmm. So I would love to do that sort of test there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> of the think, well, yeah. Of the matching column of the images. Practical today, yeah. because <laughs> you know reality is so 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 big, but a, an image or a metaphor uh, allows you to kind of get somewhat of a handle yeah. on. I mean, with a lot of humility, because it doesn't describe everything, but it does allow you to have some kind of way to interact with it and and go deeper into it, you know. Um, Over the summer, I read uh, a lot about, um, read some uh, history. I teach modern European history, and it's always a difficult thing to do <laughs> because the story is yes you know, Christ became man and then there was the great middle ages and we all triumphed and now now it's all downhill right <laughs> so but I read an author um, who helps you think through it using Saint Augustine City of God City of Man and it just helps to get some kind of you know window into it yeah. But you're looking at something that's that's ultimately real, and the decisions that people make in history have really, uh, you know, as we all in all our own lives, right, have really profound effects on what's going to happen later in history or what's going to happen later in our lives. So yeah. um, thank you for, for yeah. sharing that.
1: There's a really interesting passage in Laris, because Laris, Laris is about sort of like how time she talks about how time is eternal, but I think one of the questions she then asks is, like, can you pray for a past event, right? <laughs> oh, how wow. does, yeah. Um, oh, wow. She says here, how do you view time according to a God who exists outside of it? Might you pray for the salvation of people who have already died? Can you pray for events that have already occurred? Now, that blew my mind. I was like, I have never thought to do that, but we always talk about how God will redeem all things, right? What a
2: Wild idea. (laughs) Beautiful. Yeah. Thank you. The David Bowes theology teacher.
4: So I have three things. Uh, The first first (laughs) is um, the iconic tradition is present in the Catholic Church and our Eastern brothers and sisters. So it's not just an Orthodox thing, but our Eastern Catholics also have a rich tradition of iconography. Um, In addition with icons, I don't know if you all mentioned, but... um, The cool thing about an icon is not drawn or painted. It's written. Right. And so there's this idea of, like, that's how they describe their tradition of making icons is writing them. Um, But then another thing, when you all were talking about you're not the hero of your story, you're not the author of your story, and everything about what literature is for, I just think it it, it is time. J.R.R. Tolkien, The Lord of the Rings, one of the greatest works of literature ever. I mean, it does all of those things so beautifully. Mm. Um, Yeah. And I think we just, we just, it, that is so magnificent how Sam Wise and all of these, Sam's talking about, you know, uh, how you find, you just kind of find yourself in a story, yeah. you yes, know, yeah. and you, and Gandalf talking about, you just have to do the best you can with the time that has given you an Aragorn mm-hmm. saying to Aomer, um, when Aomer's is like, what are we supposed to do? And he says, as men have always done them, you know, to do good, avoid the evil. Uh, and then my third thing is a question. And it has to do with uh, the title. If you all could kind of explain why, because you talked about like, ho- like encountering holiness through characters, but um, and then you said it's kind of scandalous, and I'm wondering like why, like if you could talk more about like why skin. she chose the title "The Scandal of Holiness." Um, her publishers
1: probably made her do okay.
4: it. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And like what, because like, you know, like the the sin of scandal, right, is like when you when you cause others to sin. Um, and so, right. and so, so he, that's why I'm, could I'm it just, just like be
0: based in causing other like the inspiration. Yeah, like could it? I mean, could it be based in that? Well, yeah.
1: I'm wondering I wondering if she's using
4: are. it in a di- like scandal in a different way. So just to yeah. be, like, yeah, she's yeah.
1: not, and she's not Catholic. So okay. she, she, um, um, I don't know what, um, like Protestant sect she's a part of. My guess, maybe Presbyterian, but that might be. I might be totally wrong. Um, maybe PCA, maybe, maybe Anglican, maybe. But uh, but yeah, I think yeah. <laughs> Um, but I do think she's Catholic friendly um, uh-huh. because she's got a real love of all these writers, um, and, and she works at University of Dallas. Yes. <laughs> well, she yeah, she's a guest, um, but um, my, I don't think she's thinking of scandal in that way. But I okay. could be wrong. I, I, to me, I think it was it, it is a kind of it, it'll get you any you any you word you title something scandal, people are
0: like, Ooh. <laughs> I, mean, I, get it, right? I mean, I think it, it's about being countercultural. Okay. Um, it's a and it's about um, kind of. Um, I mean, I think it's probably mostly about being countercultural. Yeah, it is. Um, But then there's something... It's almost like an oxymoron, but it's not, right? The scandal of
1: holiness, you're like, how is being holy scandalous, right? Like, how is that something that, like... We've always thought of being holy as, like, the people who are, like, too pious. Like, they're the goody two-shoes, right? But what she's trying to argue is that that's not who these people we're looking at are. They're messy sinners, and the the grace that god that god gives them is tr- ginormous like that's my takeaway from so many of these characters right and that mm. that i think is scandalous it feels scandalous that and scandalous in the word that you're like mm. huh? how how is that possible how does that so i i mean perhaps the her definition of scandal is that it's unreasonable mm. right it's like it doesn't it feels but i don't think it's the same definition that you're yeah. thinking of so it would be a different we could always ask j h w what define the terms
4: um yeah. or like catches you off guard that god works through yeah vessels right yeah. 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 yeah right yeah clay vessels yeah. Yeah. Paul says.
0: Yeah. yeah yeah that was that was great great observations thank you david and she but she doesn't ever say outright in the text
1: real quickly wanted to say since i'm looking at you michelle there's a chapter on nature in st francis assisi and um michelle did a beautiful article on nature um on uh, in the magazine that i have um that you'll have to read sorry to put you on the spot (laughs) but it's lovely and i think it really gets at like the importance of kind of having moments in nature in your education um and yeah, the nature chapter on um, what's the book? Um, the book of the Dun Cow. Book of the Dun Cow is, is about uh, is a bit about nature. Um,
0: yeah. So anyway, mm-hmm. yeah, and also sort of the the way that we tell stories about nature and um, how um, there's a sense that um, nature reveals something of the mind of God. You know, like that that idea is something that she that she highlights. Um, I was also excited by um, her pairing of The End of the Affair by Graham Greene and The Violent It Away by Flannery mm-hmm. O'Connor. I know, I don't know if I can, I don't, I don't know if I'm gonna release this, but those are my summer reading books. And there they were in the same chapter as each other. I did not plan that. Um, to I mean, I wasn't inspired by this when I chose those. You know, I read this later. Uh, but the, um, and as Father Medina knows, I deliberated like extensively and at, at um, perhaps boring length um, about which books I was going to use. But um, the, the the idea that Jessica hood Wilson uses to tether those books is that um, the the idea that they both feature um, this notion of sharing in Christ's suffering, um, and that um, it's about the sacrifice, the openness to misunderstanding, and the fruitfulness of sacrifice despite that misunderstanding because of grace. Um, and so that's um, so I thought that that was um, especially. That was an especially pleasant moment for me in reading. Yeah. This has been the Life of the Mind podcast from Brookwood and Avalon Schools. I'm Sherry Walsh, here with Glenn Cora Pipkin, Woo. and Judy Kearns, <laughs> and, and Barbara Cagliotti and David Bose and true. the rest of the Brookwood faculty. Yeah. Um, our producer is Quentin Walsh. Our music is by Fabian Tell. Opinions expressed are the participants' own.